Okay, we're having a little bit of technical challenges, but we will, as soon as this gets sorted out, this is a very picture and video intense presentation. Um, my name is Steve Swanson. I'm a, a pediatric infectious disease physician at Hennepin County Medical Center in Minneapolis. Uh, I work with the University of Minnesota with the Center for Global Pediatrics that the University of Minnesota has. I grew up as a missionary kid overseas. Um, I lived my entire life. I was made in Taiwan, raised in Taiwan. I don't, my wife says I would, I think he, he doesn't break all that easily like most things made in Taiwan. Um, and just to sort of fill time until we get our thing going, you know, it took me, oh, I was probably, I was 26 when I started medical school, and it was a process of several years. Nobody in my family on either side um, was even remotely related to science. My, fa my family had produced generations of teachers, social workers, people in the, in the Christian ministry, but no one in medicine. There were a few shining examples of missionary medical doctors that I'd had as a child, and that in combination with working on the streets of Calcutta with an organization called Youth with a Mission in my um, late teenage years, and I was, I was sort of collaborating with Mother Teresa and the work that her organization was doing, sort of made me wake up one day and say, I want to do more with my life than just change diapers and feed malnourished children, as noble as that was. And so I embarked on this career of going to college, studying child psych, that I would be a child psychologist, went back to Asia to work. The whole country of Malaysia had only one child psychologist. And I started to say to myself, so why am I choosing a field like child psychology where if a country as ultra-modern as Malaysia only sees a need to hire one child psychologist for the entire country, I'm not saying that's right, they're not going to be hiring a Minnesotan ex-MK third culture kid to come and work. And what about all those other countries that I want to work that can't even afford to vaccinate children if they're, you know, they're even more so not going to be hiring a child psychologist. And by the way, I don't really like child psychology all that much. I hate to say it. I was, in, I was about ready to start a PhD program, and I liked 10% of it, but 90% of it was just kind of fluff. So I um, made a big mental, emotional, spiritual shift, and at that point decided to go off to medical school. And um, from the very beginning, I knew I was going to work with children. So this presentation is definitely skewed towards kids. I am, after all, a pediatric physician and an infectious disease. And it is, um, I decided also that I wanted to um, rapidly, I realized I wanted to be involved in public health and pediatric infectious diseases. So now I spend a good chunk of my time doing inpatient pediatrics as a hospitalist. I'm the inpatient medical director for a very big county hospital, the largest in, in Minnesota. Um, and I do ID consults in tropical medicine. And I spend a lot of my time overseas as well. I travel with my little kids. We are looking at a long-term position um, opening up in East Africa that I may be accepting to, yay. And uh, was it my thing that was bad? Apple. That's the first time they've ever sold me a bum product. Um, okay. And I want to just make sure I can use my thing. So I, um, I lost my train of thought here. Um, going, yeah, where was, so going overseas. Um, this this talk is going to be rapid fire. I don't normally talk fast, but when I get a lot of material, I try to talk fast. We'll get to as many cases as we can. Some of them are pattern recognition, little clinical vignettes. Others are a little more in-depth. 
Some is the, the common things, the softball pitches that you should hit out of the park. Others are ones I don't necessarily expect you to have seen before. I will, as a disclaimer, say that because I'm ID trained, um, a lot of my work is hospital-based, and so this is more skewed towards children and inpatient. Um, I didn't realize that I was going to be giving two talks um, when I sent in all my stuff, so the little descriptor on today's session actually describes my talk for tomorrow, which is actually focused more on intestinal parasitic infections. If you like pictures of worms, that's the one you want to come to. Now, can we kill the lights? Because this you've got to see the pictures, and you can't see them, especially up in the front, kill the, the lights. Okay. Um, I've got to see if my... Okay, so the world seems to many people a scary place, um, even more so to certain individuals, not just tropical medicine, but also um, the thought of children is a frightening prospect. You know, I would rather, if I think of a 70-year-old with chest pain, I break out in a cold sweat. But give me a small infant who's sick, um, that's not that scary for me. In the field of observation, chance only, prepare, only favors the mind which is prepared, Louis Pasteur. Um, there's no way around it. Some of these diseases you don't learn in medical school, you don't learn in residency. Um, it's only through seeing it and preparing yourself that you'll actually have some experience with it. My objectives here are to give you some very brief clinical vignettes of a tropical etiology. These have occurred, um, and all but one of the patients I actually directly took care of myself, either overseas or some of them occurred among immigrants and refugees that arrived in this country. They're parasitic, viral, bacterial, and fungal. All of them will be in these time. There's the common and the unusual. I mentioned that this is more skewed towards hospital-based and pediatric-oriented, and I have no relevant financial disclosures. So let's first start with some skin manifestations of infections in the tropics. This is an 18-month-old Cambodian child who's afebrile. Mom brings the kid in. The skin looks like this. It's been going on for a couple of weeks. So what do you think about that? You zoom in a little closer, you notice this. There's a key pustule in the middle, a big clue what this might be. Now remember, in, the, in overseas, the tropics, many of these diseases are sort of more uh, extreme manifestations of rather common illnesses. Any thoughts? Impetigo. And this is actually bullous impetigo, a little bit different. Forms of bulli. This staph aureus produces a toxin, cleaves the epidermolytic layer, does not generally go systemic, and causes a bulli. What you've seen here are the ruptured bulli um, that are drying out. If you cultured any one of these specific sites, this is another example of bullus impetigo, you would actually find staph aureus there in contrast to staph scalded skin where the, the sites of cleavage are usually sterile because the staph is elsewhere. This is another example of uh, bullus impetigo as well in children, just different presentations of it. Here's a two-year-old uh, Peruvian child with a new fever and skin lesions while recovering from acute varicella. One of the arguments for varicella vaccine was that it prevented some of the sequelae as far, as far as skin and soft tissue infections. You take a closer look at her mouth, there's a clinical clue what organism you might be dealing with. She has what we would term a strawberry tongue. And look at her skin, and this is, um, you can see varicella in various stages of healing, but then you obviously have areas of 
superinfection. Let's zoom in a little closer. There's a medical word for this, and what is it? First off, let's start with bug. What bacteria loves to hop in bed with varicella and cozy up? Yep, group A strep. And this is actually ecthyma. It's a skin infection invading into the dermal layer from group A strep. Naturally, the sequelae of, of um, this could be, or a separate complication is necrotizing fasciitis, very much epidemiologically linked with group A strep, with varicella. And again, a, a kid with facial cellulitis post-varicella as well. This is a 12-year-old Cambodian child who's got, over the course of a couple of days, this occurring to him. He may have some low-grade fevers. You look closer. You see a lot of soft tissue swelling, edema um, of the right eye, even on the left eye, and these large bullae that have erupted in a very characteristic pattern that's staying localized to one area of the face. Now, stretching back, for those of you who have gone to medical school or nursing school into the depths of your brain, what nerve in distribution is this? This is, this is a trigeminal nerve, and just the nerve name tri implies three branches of the geminal nerve. And this, remember, V1, V2, V3. So this is a unilateral um, eruption along V1 in this child. Now, here's the clue I want to give you. They, obviously, back in Cambodia, we didn't have the capacity to do viral cultures or to know, is this HSV? Or what would be the other option? Yeah, varicella. But here's a clue. Which one tends to erupt along V1? Now, this is a different African child with um, eruption along V2. This is coming along her middle eye. I mean, her, her inferior margins of her right eye along V2. This is actually HSV. I was able to diagnose it. And if you look closer at her face, smaller vesicles... Very painful, had a parasitic sense beforehand, a burning dysthesia. That was HSV. This is a boy, actually, that I took care of when I was at WashU in St. Louis. This is, varic this is varicella, herpes zoster. I always got screwed up as a, as a resident, even as a fellow. This, why do they use the word herpes zoster for varicella when it should actually be varicella zoster? But it's actually, because it's in the herpes family of viruses, and herpes zoster tends to erupt along the V1 ophthalmic distribution on the face. And there's larger vesicles. So going back to our boy, big vesicles erupting in a V1 distribution on the face tends to be classically varicella. Instead of V2 and V3, smaller, less, uh, uh, smaller vesicles are often herpetic. Is there a reason that you even need to know that? Yes, because we use different dosing of acyclovir for varicella compared to herpes. Herpes tends to have a, um, a more rapid response to lower levels of, of acyclovir. And to remind you, because you're not going to have diagnostic capacities for viruses in 99.9% .9 of the places you work overseas, this is a 14-month-old with fever and eczema herpeticum, and this is also another example of a child with HSV, eczema herpeticum. And one of the other clues that you're dealing with herpes rather than varicella is 
that eczema herpeticum tends to scallop out, dig in, um, deeper into the skin and cause more of an ulcerative sort of scalloped punctate um, appearance. And it can be in any distribution or it can be V2 and V3. And I actually classically V3 reactivate is what we would call herpes labialis or a cold sore. Okay, what's this? This is a erythematous tracking sort of serpiginous is the word we would use along the foot. This is a kid and it's on his bum. Now there's two possibilities for this. One is a cutaneous larva migraines, right? Cutaneous larva migraines on the skin. And another one, which would be not so many lesions and more rapidly moving, is larva curans in the buttock, which is a, a manifestation of strongyloides. And I'll talk more about strongyloides tomorrow. Um, strongyloides or corallis. Now this is, I actually had a... Uh, a colleague who came back from Nigeria, and just to say that, okay, so cutaneous larva migraines, what is this? This is the infective larva of a dog hookworm, Ancelostoma brasiliensis. There's a couple other species, Ancelostoma canium, that can also produce this. But dog hookworm, what is it? Humans become an accidental host of dog hookworm. And remember, hookworm penetrates skin. In dogs, it penetrates their skin. In humans, it penetrates their skin. And it migrates into the lymphatics vasculature and then completes its cycle partially in the lung as an adult in the intestinal tract. And when humans become accidental hosts of the species of hookworm specific to dogs, Ancelostoma brasiliense, they develop the wandering, penetrating, infective larva through the skin, but it can't get past the the epidermis into the dermis, and then into the more systemic. Um, and so as a result, it remains sort of trapped and wanders till it dies out. It's intensely pruritic. It may form little boli along its path. It's serpiginous. And there's really, this is about the only thing that it can be. Uh, larva curans is a manifestation of strongyloides, much more rapidly moving, fewer in number, and less pruritic. How do you treat this? Albendazole for three days or two days of ivermectin. I prefer ivermectin has higher cure rates. Now, I was going to say, I have a colleague who does a lot of missions work in Nigeria, and she came back a few months ago. She had been back in the States for three weeks when her cutaneous larva migraines erupted on her foot. And she said, Steve, what, what do you think this is? And she looked at me and I said, it's only one thing. It could be cutaneous larva migraines. I said, but when were you in Nigeria? And she goes, three. actually, it was four weeks ago she was in Nigeria. She had come back. And since that time, she had done other things. And it was four weeks from exposure to um, eruption. into. And I found nowhere in the literature where this was described as that late of an incubation period. But she actually responded beautifully to ivermectin. So this is cutaneous larva migraines. But now what other nematodes, trivia here, Enter the human host via skin penetration. I told you one, cutaneous larva migraines, dog hookworm, were accidental hosts. But what other actually enter the human skin through, into the human through skin penetration? Human hookworm. And? And schistosomiasis. Great. And there's a few others as well. Giddy worm, dracunculiasis, but... Actually, that's not true, but um, 
excuse me, human hookworm, schistosomiasis. And let me show you one other one. This is of a, this is a 26-year-old who passed this in her stool. Okay, so she had, she gave a stool sample. She had marked eosinophilia, some diarrhea, abdominal pain, and this was her stool. If you are dealing with a fresh stool, not a stool that's been sitting around for a long time, there's only one parasitic infection that will give you larva in the passage of the stool. You will see no ova. And which one is this? I've already mentioned it. Not hookworm. Not whipworm. Strongyloides. Strongyloides. So this is strongyloides. These are rhabditiform larvae shed in the stool which is strongyloides, and strongyloides is another skin-penetrating uh, parasitic infection. It's a nematode. And in fact, if you take stool and you culture it on an agar plate, um, this is actually what you get. People don't do it, but you get these serpiginous tracks where the strongyloides is moving through. This is stool that was swabbed on an agar plate, and as it's moving through, it's pulling fecal bacteria with it, leaving a serpiginous tract. It's one of the diagnostic um, uh, methods for detecting strongyloides. So is there any reason I even tell you this? Yes, because there's actually an implication to this, that schistosomiasis, strongyloides, human hookworm, are diseases where this, it's not fecal oral, but it's a route via skin penetration, and therefore... These are diseases where there's a cumulative burden over time with greater and greater exposure. These are infections that we believe have a higher burden in adults, young adults and old, uh, particularly teenage years and in their 20s, than in children. So everything you learn about parasitic infections, disproportionately, the nematodes disproportionately impacting children is true except for the skin penetrating ones where it's a lifetime exposure phenomena. And strongyloides is the one in, in, um, that you really must treat uh, because of the risk for hyperinfection or dissemination at any point later in your life. All right, so now we're going to move into a few of the less ones that are a little bit more challenging. This is an 82-year-old Peruvian potato farmer. He digs in the ground. He makes bricks with mud and hay. And three months ago, he developed this. Look at his arms. And in fact, his son is developing the first signs of it as well in his forearms. So let's zoom in a little bit and look closer at his arms. He's afebrile. He has no systemic symptoms whatsoever. Normal exam, heart, lungs, abdomen. But this is what's going on on his skin. Any ideas? This is the primary inoculation site. So this is, this is a, basically running along. This is a lymphocutaneous distribution of painless nodules that are coming up the forearms. His hands are in the dirt, making bricks. There's an uh, occupational risk for this disease. There's an exposure risk. Hay and dirt are one of the vectors for it. There's a primary inoculation, and that inoculation was more ulcerative, but was still non-painful. Now, South America, this could be Leishmaniasis, Mycobacterium marinum, 
mycobacteria, an atypical or non-tuberculous mycobacterium water, but he doesn't have that exposure. Um, mycobacterium marinum, Leishmaniasis are more subacute and chronic. Hmm. Any thoughts? This is what, well, it, it's a fungi. It's a mold. It's actually not a bacteria. It's not a parasite. And this is what you call sporotrichosis, caused by sporothrix schenkii. This is a fungus, a dimorphic fungus. It has a large environmental reservoir of moss, sphingum moss, decaying vegetation, hay, soil, masonry. It's found very commonly in South America, some in Central America, described in Japan. It's also found in other parts of the world. It is difficult to um, diagnose because you have to, even if you did a biopsy, you may not see it on KOH prep. Um, it is largely a clinical diagnosis, but you can culture it if you're the hospital. And the hospital I was at, at in Peru had the capacity. You can treat it with itraconazole, which is first line, and you treat it for two weeks after the lesions disappear. It takes an average of about six weeks. But itraconazole is, is expensive and not widely available. Fluconazole doesn't work for this. So a second line, which is still used broadly, is this saturated solution of potassium iodide. It's a liquid, and you can buy it. It's called SSKI, and it's cheap, and you titrate up, and you treat for weeks, and we don't understand why it works, but it does work. Also, if you apply heat to it, you'll actually kill the fungus. So it's kind of a heat plus either SSKI or itraconazole. All right. I have to throw a few in for the veterans in the group that are... Um, this is a, a 25-year-old Peruvian as well um, who had 10 years of this spreading, itchy plaque that was hyperkeratotic, verrucous on his foot. He had no systemic signs whatsoever. And this is what it looked like on the side of his foot. There was actually even these little black sort of punctations that would sometimes would drain some fluid. So thoughts. There's a couple of things this could be. Um, it does look fungal. It could, like a Madura foot or Chromobacter. Any other thoughts? Actinomycosis, I heard someone say. It's none of those. This is actually tuberculosis. And it's actually called Viracosa cutis. It's primary cutaneous TB. So how in the world does a guy develop primary cutaneous TB? Meaning this was not inhalational. This was acquired through direct inoculation of mycobacterium into his foot. But what do people do with TB? And what do people do overseas a lot? <coughs> On the ground and you walk in barefoot and you step into it. This was actually an occupational hazard historically was called um, prosecutor's wart um, or coroner's wart in the old days because people who did necropsies and worked on dead bodies with tuberculosis would develop this on their hands. And you can actually do a biopsy. The AFB will rarely be positive, but you can culture this 
You can do a biopsy and see characteristic micro uh, tuberculous granulomas, and his PPD was very positive as well at 15. And just to give you a respect for mycobacterium tuberculosis, this is another example of primary cutaneous TB. His lungs were, chest x-ray was fine. This was TB localized to the face. Lupus vulgaris is, a, is the other form of cutaneous tuberculosis from primary inoculation, and that looks like a, a, a uh, like sort of this large um, um, skin lesion with central necrosis, and um, and again will be often biopsy AFB negative. But this is primary cutaneous TB as well. All right, let's do some systemic. So those were cutaneous manifestations of both bacterial, viral, parasitic, and mycobacterial infections. Let's talk about some diseases that may be systemic in their manifestations. This is a seven-year-old with a two-month history of increasing lumbar pain. And you can tell he's kind of cachectic and wasted. He's HIV negative. He had a five-day history of difficulty walking, progressive vomiting, and then somnolence. There's not many things that will deform the lower back than that. I can only think of two infections that will do that, TB and brucellosis. Staph aureus osteo, salmonella osteo, other pyogenic osteo does not produce a deformity in the back that we would call a gibbous deformity. It's also called Pott's disease. And if you look at him even closer, he's got a little bit of a pressure ulcer where that developed. On plain film, this little boy had left upper lobe disease. That was probably his pulmonary tuberculosis with secondary tuberculitic osteomyelitis and meningitis. It's not uncommon for people with, in children with tuberculous, um, uh, with uh, tuberculous osteomyelitis of the vertebral bodies to develop TB meningitis, is which we thought he had as well. And that's his, um, on x-ray you can see involvement of L3 and L4. And actually, um, that's actually MRI as well. And so what happens with tuberculosis, it hematogenously will, um, and sometimes you'll have negative chest x-rays on children, not infrequently, at least half the time you'll have negative chest x-rays when you're dealing with TB osteomyelitis. Hematogenously will spread to the um, intervertebral discs, typically lower thoracic and lumbar region, and then will spread anteriorly. Sometimes they'll produce a cold abscess that will drain. So this is TB, and I have a very healthy respect for TB because of its protean manifestations. Now this is a boy, I did not take this picture, but the, um, this comes from David Worrell in the Parasitology uh, Atlas, but this could have been the child I'm going to describe to you next. This is a kid who's had a chronic drainage from his face and parotid. TB would be very first on my list, but he is Cambodian, and that's a huge clue. He's had three months of pain and swelling to his right cheek and behind the right ear, and he's had low-grade fever. He's not malnourished. He's never been hospitalized. He has no immunizations, no household TB contacts. There's no evidence of HIV by um, history or exam. We didn't test him because it's quite expensive at that time when we saw him. He's taking medications at home, antibiotics, but unknown. 
welcome to the challenges of working um, overseas. You can go to any street corner in Cambodia, and this is true, and actually go down to Minneapolis as well and go to any Hispanic grocery store, and you can buy packages of antibiotics mixed with steroids and antihistamines. Any 80-year-old grandmother um, selling on the street corners of Cambodia is going to give you, if you come in with a cold-like symptoms, a package of antibiotics, steroids, and antihistamines. And so virtually every child who comes in who has had some pretreatment with antibiotics beforehand. Actually, on a side note, we did an antimicrobial uh, susceptibility in Cambodia. It was the only one ever done on pediatrics, looking at patterns of antibiotic resistance among the common bacteria for children. And we found certain antibiotics that were widely being used, even in hospital, were not working at all in Cambodia. 96% of all gram negatives in E. coli tested to Bactrim were resistant. And actually, 40% of all the E. coli enterobacter Klebsiella that we tested was resistant to ceftriaxone. So you know what? What's the implications of that? This is one of the values of doing some research in these countries because you are treating huge populations of children with AMP and GENT, standard protocols for neonatal sepsis. Kids not getting better. You might, if you have the resources, switch to AMP and ceftriaxone. Rarely do you have cefotaxime. And you know what? The child dies. And the typical answer is, well, we must have had the wrong bug or delay in care and treatment, latent presentation. No, it was because 40% of the gram-negative sepsis in neonates was resistant to a third-generation cephalosporin there. And this is a problem that's developing in, um, and being finally reported on in multiple countries because ceftriaxone has become like the new amoxicillin. You can go to any clinic and docs give it or pharmacists give it because they'd rather give a shot and send you away and not have to deal with you for 24 hours and it's also perceived as, you know, a vaccine injection is always better, so the perception is by the lay public. So this kid had been on antibiotics. We don't know which one. Here's his physical exam. He's got a low-grade fever. Um, his skin is, has this tender abscess behind his right ear and his right cheek, both of which are draining this foul-smelling purulent discharge. He's got drainage coming from his ear as well, the right. He's got some submandibular lymph nodes that are probably reactive. Again, let's look at his face. Any thoughts on what this is? Well, here's his labs. White count, not all that elevated, normal differential. Um, hematocrit platelets, unremarkable. Some elevation to sed rate. His PPD was negative. His chest x-ray done to rule out TB was normal as well. Actually, chest x-ray would never rule out TB in this case, but it doesn't show evidence of a mediastinal hyaluronopathy or pulmonary disease. So his initial diagnosis is a soft tissue abscess of his face, his, his retroauricular region, maybe also chronic otitis media, maybe mastoiditis, possibly TB. Start him on antibiotics. They started him on um, IV cloxacillin, or which is called oxacillin, um, and ceftriaxone at this wonderful children's hospital in CM Reap. They also did surgical IND of the abscess. They showed signs of mastoiditis. And they were actually, this hospital, were able to culture, um, because we've done a lot of work in developing microbiologic capacity, um, the abscess and mastoid bone. And here's his course. Over the next week, he continues to spike fevers. His wound is not improving. His abdomen is becoming distended. He's developing dyspnea, signs of shock. 
he's transferred to from the pediatric floor to a very small ICU that this um, children's hospital has in Cambodia. He's got bilateral infiltrates now on his lungs uh, in his chest x-ray. That's new. His abdominal ultrasound is showing a large amount of abdominal ascites. He's got multiple hepatic and splenic lesions. They take him to the OR. The ascites is purulent. These lesions in the liver and spleen, too numerous to count, are abscesses. He's not responding to ceftriaxone and oxacillin. Thoughts? Well, let's go back. How many think that this is a virus? You don't have to raise your hand. Virus? I don't know of any viruses that produce abscesses like this. Um, mycobacterium? I can tell you, I see a lot of TB. I've never seen it quite look this sort of explosive and rapid. But you never take that off of your differential. And he hasn't been treated for TB. Bacteria? Well, which bacteria would we not be treating with oxacillin and ceftriaxone? Fungus? Histo. There's histo worldwide. It's not a classic presentation for histo. Could be. There are other fungi. So he did improve after a very important change in his antibiotic regimen. Changed his antibiotics. And this was our final diagnosis. Separative peritonitis, mastoiditis, sepsis, pneumonia, peritonitis. We've said all that. Is, does anyone have an idea? The clue is where he's from, Cambodia, Southeast Asia. This is an organism for those of you who work in that area of the world that you at least have to have on your radar. Meliodosis, Burkholderia pseudomalii. Now, I could present to you just patients with, oh, classical TB and typhoid and dengue. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to present because most of you have seen, or many of you have seen those cases. This is um, meliodosis. And it is an important disease to at least know for those of you who want to work in Southeast Asia and Northern Australia. This is a gram-negative aerobic rod that its old name was Pseudomonas pseudomalia. It's kind of in that pseudomonid family, which is why I didn't respond to oxacillin and ceftriaxone. And... It is commonly found in soil and surface water and in rice fields. It is as protean a manifestation as any organism ever described. It is subclinical. It is acute. It is chronic. It is latent. There are people who have come down with Pseudomonas 60 years after their exposure to it when they have left the country where there was any um, meliodosis. It's localized, i.e. parotid mastoid, and it's disseminated, i.e. sepsis and, and hepatosplenic. You get it through inhalation or ingestion or cutaneous inoculation, and it tends to predominate in its clinical presentation in the rainy season. This is an organism that lives in the ground. And where do you find it? You find it in primarily Thailand, Cambodia, Irianjaya, northern Indonesia, and in northern Australia, very high rates. And so about 80% of people of Thai children tested will have antibodies to Burkholderia, Pseudomalia, or Meliodosis. So we know that there's a subclinical um, presentation in a lot of people. But when it does present localized in Thai kids, 
the predominant presentation is one of parotitis. We think it's because they ingest dirt and there's a direct inoculation effect into the parotid gland through oral inoculation. But it can also present a cavitating pneumonia with fever weight loss that completely mimics TB. Although unlike TB, there's less hyalur mediastinal involvement with meliodosis. And it can be systemic in sepsis and intra-abdominal infections. And less commonly, it can produce CNS and osteomyelitis. And the treatment is the Dickens for this because you have to do two phases of treatment. One is the acute phase. You're trying to reduce mortality. The mortality gets up to 95% if you don't do it when they're presenting. And you have to use septazidine or imipenem or miropenem, which is a challenge for, for hospitals. Although in these areas of Asia, they've learned about this disease. And, they've, and then other options, way less effective, higher treatment failures are augmented and chlorophenicol. And after you've done the acute phase, which is typically two to eight weeks, then you have to do the eradication phase to reduce the risk of relapse because otherwise there's about a one in four chance that it's going to relapse and present all over again, kind of like poltergeist. Here we are again. Um, and you give Bactrim plus Doxy for 20 weeks. 20 weeks. And if you're pregnant or if you're a child, we use Augmentin, but it doesn't do quite as well in the eradication phase. And the outcomes, untreated, 95%. Uh, mortality treated, you can drop that down to as low as 15% in Australia. They, they have a few other protocols that they use. And relapsing without, um, as I said, is 5% to 23%. Okay, another case. This is a nine-month-old Liberian infant. Febrile and fussy for 11 days. Non-bloody diarrhea, six a day. Three days after her diarrhea began, she started having vomiting and she has a mild cough. So fever, 11 days, non-bloody diarrhea, now vomiting. Her exam, she's febrile, nine-month-old. So we allow a little bit of a faster heart rate. We expect lower blood pressures. But her blood pressure would be normal for a nine-month-old. The heart rate is fast. That's a neonatal heart rate. That's not a nine-month-old heart rate. So she's tachycardic. She's febrile. She's a little bit tachypneic. She's standing normally on room air. Her breathing is unlabored. So even with the tachypnea and unlabored breathing, I wouldn't say that this is a pneumonia. Just um, I wouldn't bark up that tree too quickly. Her lung fields are resonant and clear. She's got a flow murmur. And this is her chest x-ray. And the pathology is not in the lungs. What's abnormal about this x-ray that they did not report out? Liver. She's got a very generous liver. And one other one where you can actually go look at that x-ray and you say, I'm going back to the bedside to fill the belly again because I missed something. Spleen. You see this? That's the splenic shadow. And in fact, I did exactly that. I sent the resident back and liver and spleen were six and six down. And she's pale. And her labs, her white count is... 8,900 with a bit of a bandemia, anemic, and low platelets. And actually, they were able to do a BMP, and she had a metabolic acidosis. So she's intravascularly contracted. She's been having diarrhea and vomiting for a long time. Nine-month-old. So what's on your differential? Is this dengue? Okay, without going back to the labs, what doesn't fit with dengue? Say that again. So 
age, uh, nine-month-old would be a little unusual for, for dengue hemorrhage fever, but dengue hemoconcentrates. We'll give you thrombocytopenia, but hemoconcentrates, so you're not going to usually have this kind of anemia with it. Is this malaria? Where did I say she's from? Liberia. Holy smokes. Febrile child from Liberia. Malaria is number one on my differential, and two, and three, and four, and with hepatosplenomegaly and anemia. But what about this vomiting and diarrhea? Does that fit with malaria? Thank you. Is this enteric typhoid fever? Well, it could be. I mean, you're not going to take that off of your differential, but I will say that um, her anemia doesn't quite fit with that unless she's got a perforation and GI bleed. And um, rickettsiosis, there's uh, African tick bite fever. It rarely presents like that spotted fever groups. Chikungunya, I always throw that in, great name. That means that which debilitates. It's a, it's a word. It's a symmetric arthritis. It's a virus. Um, it's fever, rash, doesn't give you those kinds of laboratory parameters. Katayama fever, acute schistosomiasis, no, okay. Acute EBV or CMV, she lived in the States, this was her, but that wouldn't explain still completely her anemia, although there can be some marrow suppression and, and immune-mediated hemolysis with Epstein-Barr virus or CMV. Is she HIV infected? Is it, well, that's not usually a presentation for HIV. So what labs? Well, let's just cut to the chase. This is her thick blood film. And... What do you see on this? So what's a thick blood film? You take the blood, you put it on a slide. It's usually thick enough that you can't actually read newspaper through it. You hemolyze it, you stain it, you put a cover slip on it, and all of these, too numerous to count, little things, these larger ones are aggregations of platelets and white cells, are parasitic protozoa, malarial protozoa, all of these. And so what is a thick blood film allow you to do. It allows you to see a parasite density as low as 5 to 10 microliters in your blood. And the sensitivity in qualified hands is 10 to 20 fold higher on a thick film than it will ever be on a thin film. So why even bother to get a thin film? Because a thin film allows you to speciate and determine percent of erythrocytes infected with the malaria, which is the percent parasitemia. So thick diagnosis, thin is speciation and parasitemia. And um, that's a thin film. And each one of these intraerythrocytic fine rings, some of them are multiply infected, all ages of red blood cells, is plasmodium falciparum. So now, in practical purposes, even overseas, a lot of clinics are moving towards a rapid antigen test. In the U.S., it's FDA approved. It's a venous or finger stick. It's super easy. It's extremely sensitive. Uh, for falciparum, it's becoming more cost effective. For falciparum, you'll pick up roughly 100%. Non-falciparum, you'll find about 85%. And this is what it looks like, for example. Binex now is one manufacturer. You put blood on it. You fix a reagent. It has little lines, almost like pregnancy lines you can determine. And the problem with this, it's more sensitive but it doesn't allow you to do percent parasitemia. And, you know, there are chronically infected or low levels of infection overseas, and so that's going to give a positive test. As will the malaria smear, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's why the kid is sick. So you know that there's actually five, no, wait, six species of malaria now that are known to infect humans. There's Plasmodium falciparum, that's the bad player. That's the mean boy on the block. That's the one that produces a million pediatric deaths in sub-Saharan Africa a year. 
alone. This is the number one infectious disease killer of children under age five in Africa still. It's is malaria. It's not TB or HIV. Vivax ovale actually has now two different species based on PCR genetics. Malariae and then now Lessi or Nolessi, there's a couple different ways to pronounce it, seen in Borneo, which is kind of a hybrid of Vivax and falciparum in the way that it presents. These are all human malarial species. And where is the risk of malaria highest in? Without question, it's actually Papua New Guinea and Oceania has the highest rates of malaria infection, followed by West Africa, where our child came, followed by Central and East Africa, followed by rural Southeast Asia, is where rates are highest among travelers and immigrants and probably locally as well. So I'm going to just say that for children, the prominent features for malaria are going to be, well, malaise, listlessness, vomiting, diarrhea, loose stools, fever, often high, dehydration, headache, and then physical findings are the lethargy, pallor, tachypnea, tachycardia, and hepatosplenomegaly, which takes days to develop. So if you don't see it right away, it doesn't mean it's not malaria. And this is the important point. Vomiting, dehydration, and respiratory symptoms are common in kids with facet malaria. The child I presented to you was admitted with the diagnosis of viral gastro. What? Viral gastro? 11 days of fever? Maybe that's telling me I need to shut up. Um, and what about this thing that you learn, and we'll wrap this up. This is our last case that we have time for. Classical tertian and quartan fever periodicity. You know what? That stuff is just crap. <laughs> when, it, when we're talking about young children or non-immunes, which is you or me, who have no semi or partial immunity to malaria. They're just febrile, and they stay febrile. And it's only the repeatedly infected people who develop any kind of periodicity. Well, I'll skip over this. So I want to show you a video. Ah, it's not playing. Okay, well, I'll have to skip the video. Um, I can play it later after I shut down this thing. We're going to, I want to skip through cerebral malaria to just say that our child did not have cerebral malaria. Our kid had, respiratory, uh, had some respiratory distress. And I'm going to, I'll show you the video for those of you who are interested in staying a few minutes later. It's just a 60-second video of a kid with cerebral malaria and rapid, Kussmaul, rapid breathing intermixed with Kussmaul breathing. Um, and I pose the question to the audience, what makes you more worried? And they always say, it's the cerebral malaria. And I say, no, it's the respiratory distress. Because in Africa, a syndrome of respiratory distress and acidosis carried a far worse prognosis than cerebral malaria alone. This was a study done by Marsh in Kenyan children in 1995, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. The kids with cerebral malaria, impaired consciousness, had a 7% mortality rate. Those with severe respiratory distress had a 23% mortality rate as defined by acidosis and rapid breathing, or rapid breathing just as a proxy for acidosis. Severe anemia with a hemoglobin of less than 5 had only uh, a, a severe fatality of 1.3%. And why does respiratory distress matter for kids with malaria and adults for that matter? It's because plasmodium falciparum elaborates and induces a tremendous cytokine storm 
with tumor necrosis factor being released. If you measure the tumor necrosis factor in the blood and you correlate that with the percent mortality, the highest levels of tumor necrosis factor are, which is, which is produced in sepsis as well, have the highest mortality rates. So then I come back and we'll finish. My nine-month-old with a 25% parasitemia, if I had 25% parasitemia, I'd be dead like that. Why did she not have cerebral malaria or death? And it all comes down to antibodies because she was breastfed and she was nine-month-old and she still had some transplacental and breastfed-mediated partial semi-immunity, which is IgG. And as that drops, the deaths rise. And so there is a... And then if you have repeated infections and you're lucky to live to five in areas of high year-round transmission of malaria, then you develop some antisporozoite, which is the first stage of the malaria parasite, and other antibodies that ameliorate but don't eliminate the clinical presentation. And then you tend to get sick, but you have enough time to get to the pharmacy or the clinic, you don't die. And this is why the under age five group gets hit the hardest, but really it's about nine months to a year, five years. And this is why our kid could live with 25% parasitemia because of partial semi-immunity mediated through transplacental waning antibodies and some ongoing. Um, and then the treatment is just to throw out on people. There's lots of different guidelines out there for treatment, but I will say that artisanate, an artemisinin and derivative, is now the parenteral for kids that are vomiting and need um, parental treatment. Treatment of choice for all patients, including pregnant women. It very rapidly attains parasiticidal levels. It's IV or IM or rectal if you don't have it. There's some other options. Artemether, which is oil-based, can be given IM or rectal. Quinine and quinidine are more toxic. And, and then you always add a second drug when they're able to take PO. You never use monotherapy for the entire treatment course with quinine or atisinate or artemisinin derivatives to prevent resistance from developing doxy or clinda or overseas coartum, which is artemether lumefantrine. And then you want to do supportive care for glucoses as well. I had more cases, clostridial myonecrosis or gas gangrene, a few others, um, neurocystic sarcosis, but we're out of time. I'm five minutes, seven minutes past. Um, thank you. And I'm, I'm going to stay up here if anyone wants to ask questions on any of these specific cases. Um, if you're interested, tomorrow we'll cover, for those of you who like the clinical tracks, we'll be talking about the intestinal parasitic infections. Thank you.